0: Welcome to War, Horrid War. I am your co-host, Joel, and I'm joined here by... Nick. <laughs> the other co-host.
1: <laughs> For this episode, please refer to me as Nikola. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: there's your little teaser. That we're, today we're going to be talking about all things Slav with the uh,
1: wars in the Balkans
0: in the late 19th century, early 20th century.
1: I think it's going to be... so. This will be tough to decide where to start or what to discuss, which we've already talked about, because the idea was initially to do the Balkan Wars, which are two relatively short conflicts in 1912 and 1913, um, that immediately um, that are immediately followed by World War One, and in some cases are linked. I mean, to the assassination of. Uh, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, um, but that is a, on its own already, is a gigantic bite to chew on. And I think what it leads to is kind of a rabbit hole, which is the rabbit hole that I've gone down, uh, which is you continuously want to contextualize something. So you want to contextualize World War I by understanding what was actually going on in the Balkans. You try to understand the Balkan Wars, then you need to contextualize that by going further back. You want to understand the Balkans, so you need to contextualize it by understanding the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, you've lost your job. You have no friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're embroiled in hour-long YouTube debates with <laughs> Croat Pride 77 <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about a, a part of the world that's very
0: old and has very long memories. And there are grievances that were felt in the 19th century just like there are grievances that are felt today, and they go back hundreds and hundreds of
1: years, which is kind of interesting too. Because my perception totally—this is probably going to anger the uh, the Balkan <laughs> listenership—but <laughs> I really feel that it's interesting looking at recent—I um, mean, recent the past couple decades—those um, kind of historical grievances looking at the history of the Balkans especially in the 19th century it doesn't come out as much a lot of it is often rooted in uh, their contemporary kind of political economic struggles and I think this there is this perception I I know especially when you're talking about Serbia of um, rooted in kind of the the historical last ditch stands against uh, the Turkish invaders and Uh, Battles in in and around Kosovo and stuff like this, and I know I'm completely forgetting the famous. There's the one famous battle that.
0: Well, it's uh, the Battle of Kosovo Fields, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is is the the ultimate example of that? It's just seared into the collective consciousness of Serbian nationalism. Yeah. And even though it was a defeat, it's it it's sort of a mark of pride in the act of resistance.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's, it's interesting, the kind of theme of defeat comes back, but my, my t- completely outsider percep- perception of it is that I think that there's an ebb and flow of that kind of historical awareness. So when, when there's a stronger need, for example, of kind of pan-Yugoslav, when there's a stronger kind of Yugoslav identity that's needing to be formed, that might recede away um when the kind of immediate political or economic struggles are more apparent that also recedes as well so it seems it seems to be something that comes and goes and it's maybe i guess what i'm trying to get at is that it's maybe a little bit reductionist to think that um th- th- there's there's often a perception that it's always oh, it's just these kind of ancient feuds that are always being played over over and over again but especially in the 19th century these are you know, look at the kind of the intellectuals of Serbia, Croatia, Bulgaria, Macedonia, and kind of early uh, national thought in Albania as well. Too, it's not there's not really anything that's primitive or archaic about it. They're you know they're directly referencing ideas of the Enlightenment and uh, kind of a desire of I guess a more kind of enlightened nationhood, but because of the context that they're in it's a little bit of the tragedy of it is that at the end of the day these are just kind of peoples and and nations that have tried to uh, exist but because of the specific world historical context that they're in um, it's this really weird pressure cooker like it's it's a situation that i don't know there's obviously countries nations that have been torn apart and thrown around by the great powers, by colonial powers, but they're at this weird crossroads where um, it's just so... The the kind of mishandling of... And the the intervention and the influence um, that's kind of played around is, I think, um, is pretty tragic because there's maybe an alternate universe where (laughs) they can they can they can develop and kind of take hold of their destiny and i think at certain times you look at yugoslavia you know that 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 attempt has come to fruition but at the same time you look at cases like and we'll talk about 1878 and uh, i mean world war 1 as well too where uh, that's not so much the case and there's there's also the factor of geography
0: and that much of the region is hilly and mountainous even and that We see around the world that places that are like that, they tend to host many different groups. And when you try to impose upon that the Westphalian notion of a nation state over top of these mixed-up communities, you end up getting these sort of chaotic results where there's all this fighting, one tribe instigating against another, one valley over. If you look at, say, the Levant Any of the areas that are flatter, that are like desert, tends to be a monoculture. But once you get up into the hills, there's just a plethora of different communities. Same thing in the Caucasus regions. You have all kinds of different peoples in there. So,
1: I want to keep that in mind, too, as we talk about this. Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's something where there's different uh, ethnicities, different uh, language groups, obviously... Uh, the interplay between Catholics, um, Muslims, uh, Orthodox Christians, Orthodox Christians who are split between themselves, notably between the Greeks and the Bulgarians. Um, and I think that's a, that is a very good point to make is that when you kind of put this cookie cutter idea over them, you get places like, I mean, Sarajevo, that was a, a crossroads of, of civilizations With people who, um, not to romanticize or generalize, but people who, despite these differences, lived in you know relative harmony and uh, for a very long time, Um, you, yeah, it it leads to interesting, uh, definitely interesting situations. Maybe we can go back a little uh, bit. well, Well,
0: just before we do that, though, and then ironically, on the other side of the equation, we have the Ottoman Empire, which had made itself successful by being a cohesive uh, Muslim military force but as we'll see as we talk about this region in having to adapt to the changing realities of nationalism they're having to incorporate now people who are of different backgrounds ethnic backgrounds and it's very disastrous for their ability to form a coherent military force to resist the expansion of these new polities.
1: Well, especially since for so long, their military tradition and their main military institution was drawing from non-Muslim populations to form the Janissary Court. Maybe that's a good place to, <laughs> to start a little bit is to start talk about with the, the Janissaries. <laughs> start with the Janissaries, the bloated <laughs> That would be, if, if for people who don't know about
0: the Janissaries, would you like to give a little rundown of how they were...
1: Uh, Levied, so they were. I think the the system was called the Dervish May. Completely mispronouncing the the Dervish. I'll go with that. Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) John, do you want to (laughs) correct? You want to look that up in the book? His head. Yeah. The authority (laughs) says it's good. So,
1: (laughs) continuing in my falsehoods, but it was it was a a system (laughs) of culling, uh, not even young men, boys from the empire's Christian populations, primarily, and primarily from the Balkan regions, to form soldiers who, um, and here my my knowledge of the Ottoman Empire is, is quite lacking, but who who were a, really a feared military force for quite a long time. Um, probably some, they formed some of the best soldiers um, in Europe and the Middle East for a significant period of time, but their decline and they're kind of, basically they became an institution my understanding of it is they, they really became an institution unto themselves within. So they became a kind of weird bureaucracy and state within a state mm-hmm. that lost, that, that really had much, very little to do with uh, war fighting, uh, didn't modernize whatsoever pretty much after the 18th century. Uh, so their actual capacity to field competent fighting force declined dramatically. And it really became this bizarre system of patronage and, and uh, clientelism where it just existed. It really existed for its own sake.
0: A good parallel is, if you know Roman history, the Praetorian Guard, likewise the Praetorian Guard were the essentially the uh, bodyguards of the emperor. But as they developed as an institution, they ended up being one of the... Main groups that would take down emperors usually through assassination, and so in that sense they became a, a different column within the Roman system. Likewise with the Janissary Corps.
1: Yeah, exactly. That, and that's a that's a great comparison that exists outside of the traditional authorities of power. John just confirmed that it's the De, Devshirme, D E V S H I R M E. Very nice. (laughs) Live fact-checking. This podcast is really going places. 100% certified factually (laughs) true, thanks to sponsored by Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the interesting thing, the Ottoman Empire, and this is we've already said we could spend uh, a very long time, many episodes talking about them. Um, In the 19th century, it's characterized anyways in the Balkans. Uh, what's interesting is that in the Balkans, you have, in Serbia, notably, you have a uh, pretty major uprising in 1803. Um, do, do you want to give a little context for what's happened
0: to the Ottomans at this point? Basically, if you could sum it up, it'd be it's getting called the sick man of Europe. Mm-hmm. It's having to be propped up by other empires, notably the British Empire. Yeah. The British Empire isn't doing this out of some sort of. Uh, you know positive feeling towards the ottomans it's that they don't want the ottomans to collapse and then give russia access to the mediterranean they have access to the mediterranean then they have access to the atlantic the pacific and then they can start questioning britain's control of the seas um the ottomans just failed to adapt to the 19th century industrialization it's a heavily rural empire They don't have big cities, really, except for Constantinople. Uh, Even that, it's not an industrialized city, really. So they can't keep up with the necessary production to be able to make armaments, to be able to be a big player on the world stage. They're a multi-ethnic, as we've been discussing, a multi-ethnic empire. Not just in the Balkans, but there's a huge Arab population to their southern so the southern part of their empire that's also kind of chafing under the collapsing empire uh, so they have a lot of problems essentially <laughs> they've
1: got 99 problems
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: at least yeah <laughs> at least <laughs> counting uh, yeah so i think definitely that's uh yeah the sick man of europe um
0: and meanwhile you know, you know it's we'll discuss this we'll go into this but so there's, there's the main conflict between the ottomans and the and the, the Ru- and the british and the russians and whatever but as we'll see it's not just them it's a, it's a, a bunch of different competing forces that are yeah. using the ottomans in some capacity or another and yeah. the ottomans are trying to manage the
1: situation yeah i feel like the ottoman empire is literally in a in a, in a certain way drawn and quartered <laughs> so yeah. you think of like somebody <laughs> on the ground with their limbs pointing in every direction they're torn apart in Libya eventually by the Italians. Their Balkan arm is like mangled, yeah, <laughs> torn off their body as well too. North Africa North is Africa. being questioned <laughs> yeah.
0: by both the, the inhabitants of that region and also the empires that want to seize it under any pretext.
1: Yeah. So, the, so this is a little bit. So, what's kind of characterized, and it's interesting um when you mentioned their kind of failed their failure to reform is between eighteen thirty roughly and eighteen seventy there's what was referred to as the Tanzimat in um which was a, a vast kind of series of administrative reforms throughout the empire to again to get it even close to being in the state of a of a kind of more modern nineteenth century state. Um and I think these these reforms were mainly a failure in the sense that they had um, they had different objectives. Modernizing the army that we, we might come back to was actually somewhat successful. Um, creating a new national framework or national identity, which was the Lik. So again, trying to reconcile. I think they were. The, the, the Ottoman ruling class was aware, obviously, that there were multiple national identities that had to be reconciled. And there was an attempt to create something that would that would resemble a kind of a, a supranational identity. Uh, but this was only ever really confined to the ruling class and the kind of feuding, uh, feuding feudal ruling class as well. Um, they only had, so I have a note here, their... They only had a ministry of. They only created a ministry of finance in 1839, and they only started to actually build budgets in the 1840s. But what was already happening? And speaking of being propped up, uh, the people who loved doing the propping up the more the most were Austrian and English banks who were lending ridiculous sums of money to the Ottoman Empire uh, throughout through the Middle. 19th century all the way until uh, 1873 when everything completely collapsed and it was just kind of feeding this this bloated beast that was taking in all this liquidity but had no mechanism to manage it whatsoever so it was literally just sinking collapsing debt like there's an interesting story at one point the french um a, a great parallel again with lenders is kind of the drug dealer feeding the the habit the french at one point issued a loan that was equal to their current sovereign debt so knowing full well that they they had they didn't have the administration they didn't have the planning they had no they had none of the sophisticated financial means to figure out how to pay this back the french just issued them like oh yeah we're gonna double we're gonna double your national debt in the 1860s um which leads in 1873 to a uh, complete, a massive debt crisis and uh, them defaulting on all their loans. So that's a little bit later, but in the early 19th century, um, I think what's it's really in the Balkans, anyways. The Ottoman Empire is characterized by um, those kind of national awakenings, which interestingly enough, in the case of Serbia, anyways. And I don't think we'll spend too much time on it for now. But the the, the Serbian uprising in the in 1803 there there's not there's one there isn't really a full sense of nationhood, and it's really um, a sense of rebellion against um, the 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 Muslim and the Greek uh, I guess call them their their overlords. So they're they're again they're still negotiating. Their uprisings are kind of negotiations, still within the context of empire, and so it's it'll kind take of a while for that to mature.
0: It's kind of like a class struggle, type event. Yeah, could be described. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, no, absolutely. Where it's it takes those few kind of convulsions, um, and I mean, it's it's not really a process in the sense that it'll it'll take a Serbian defeat for them to be granted their independence. But Serbia, and we'll try to, I don't think we'll be able to cover every Balkan nation, but Serbia, as one of the main Balkan states, is able to at least access a state of, um, uh, to become a, 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 a relatively autonomous principality within the, the Ottoman Empire. So the, the Balkans, I think, up until... How do they, how do they achieve that? How, how do they work towards getting there? So it's it's basically there's an uprising led by and this is the name I was looking up, Kara Kara Joe. It starts with a K. <laughs> I do hope we get messages <laughs> <Yeah>. to correct <laughs> our pronunciation God, yeah. on any of these. This is, for a pronunciation test, this is probably one of the most brutal. This would be hard to one. choose. Yeah, Kara yeah. uh, Jover, We'll go with that. Um, Do you have any
0: background on him, on like where, where he's coming from, like his his grievances? And
1: uh, so for for him, not so much. He he'll lead kind of like a bandit uprising, more or less, like a peasant uprising in Serbia. Um, it's pretty. It's obviously brutally repressed, and he'll flee. and I think it's eighteen in you know, like the eighteen uh, teens, like eighteen twelve, eighteen thirteen. Um, he'll flee to Austria. But what he does is he, he sets the stage for the kind of second um, family that's going to come uh, to power in Serbia, the Obrenoviches. Obrenoviches. <laughs> um Who they, the, 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 the patriarch of this family, is kind of a, uh, a pig magnate because pig uh, rearing is the main industry in Serbia at the time and will remain so for a very long time. Uh, exporting mainly to Austria. Um, what he'll do is, after this first failed uprising, he'll be the one who, in the 1820s and the 1830s, really kind of negotiates. Um, he understands that they need to negotiate terms of existence with the Ottomans, so he establishes the terms of the principality. Um, I wouldn't be able to go into details about the kind of division of powers, but the Ottomans, in most of these cases, retain kind of power to um to gather some tribute from them but they're largely more or less serbia's is kind of on the road to autonomy at this point here so they'll be able to kind of develop um a very kind of basic fighting force and control of their own internal affairs but for all intents and purposes it's still considered to be inside of the ottoman empire
0: yeah once you're unable to levy taxes in something that's supposedly in your jurisdiction. That's really, the writing is on the wall at that point. If you can't do such a basic state function, then separation
1: at that point is inevitable. And And the interesting thing for them is that there's kind of like two degrees. So the Ottomans are dependent upon these kind of mercenary tax farmers to do the work for them. So there's like two degrees of separation between them and their actual subjects in the sense that there's these kind of feared para you know they're not officially part of the ottoman administration but who are granted it's almost like you're granted like a franchise <laughs> like you're yeah. allowed to go do some tax farming in this area and then the ottomans will gather from them so the the ottoman authority is i mean in some cases it's 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 quite present you'll have of course i mean there's garrisons and there's there's uh, administrative bodies but the kind of daily experience for I would imagine for for most peasants at this time would be these tax farmers coming around. Who again, it's like having, it's like they had like these weird collection agencies almost who are harassing you, calling you every day. Um, yeah, to the get most your money hated the, group of people in any society. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then for the Ottomans, it's extremely inefficient because they then have to harass those people yeah. to get the payments back. So it's like the percentage of money there's. There's a middleman and he's taking a significant cut. Yeah, (laughs) it's
0: a huge amount of burden that you're putting on a population, a rest of population, and then you're getting this minimal amount of resources out of it. It's a bad bargain for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So a little bit like in the the kind of slow collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, um, coming back to these reforms here that are actually really spurred spurned on for a lot of different reasons but notably in 1830 uh, around that time uh, greek uh, greece becomes independence so they're actually interestingly enough they're the first ones um in the balkan area to gain their independence and it won't be a while longer until you have other balkan states that that access this as well but
0: and the greeks were heavily helped by europe Europe really having a, an infatuation with Greece after the Enlightenment and romantic notions of nationalism and, and just um, basically idealizing the ancient Greeks. Why not help their descendants gain independence from this sclerotic empire and also conveniently then give you a, a foothold near the... Dardanelles Straits and and access to the Black Sea, right?
1: And what's interesting is there's a lot of accounts of, especially there were a lot of English uh, Hellenophiles who would make their way to Greece. And uh, Greece is interesting because it kind of developed in two very different ways. The hinterlands or the, the Greek mainland was extremely underdeveloped in the Greek War for Independence, it was mainly kind of these bandits, roving groups. There was very little organization, whereas um, you know the, the more the, the uh, coastal, uh, island-based Greeks that were that had a, a kind of merchant tradition had a strong naval tradition as well too. Were extremely effective in blockading the Ottomans in their war for independence. But there's a lot of accounts of these uh, these these uh, Hellenophiles who were in Greece and who kind of came expecting, I guess, to walk down, walk along the coasts, having (laughs) a kind of Socratic dialogue with somebody. seeing people in togas. (laughs) And And they were rapidly (laughs) disillusioned. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Definitely not even close to the same society that these people were expecting, but these people were, they had a very different mentality than we have as more modern people in that they had these, extremely romantic notions of how the world should be and a lot of them sort of looking for a kind of you know especially in the English case like a Victorian stoic manliness being being embodied by the Greeks and that would be yeah a huge disappointment to come across and then definitely to confirm your already racist notions that England is now the inheritor of those ancient noble virtues and that the baton has been passed basically (laughs) and it's up to them to rule the world
1: (laughs) yeah so now I'm thinking I'm, I'm gonna have to I think I'll try to fast forward quite quickly because I'm trying to get us to the yeah, we're kind of languishing yeah, we're in the languishing early in. 19th century, <laughs> and I'll I'll admit this this is dangerous territory because I'm not prepared enough to be, <laughs> to be in the early 19th century.
0: But yeah, all you need to know really is that the beginning of the 19th century, the the notions of the nation state and of nationalism collide with the general decline of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of Europe in general relative to it. And for the first time, these forces can crash together, and they do so in the Balkans. And the people who are living there, they adopt these notions and they rebel.
1: Yeah, that's a great. No, thank you. That's a great uh, synthesis. And I would, I would maybe just add that. Again, there's there's the the sick man of Europe is kind of dying, and the vultures are definitely circling. Um, you mentioned the English again, who are. Again, kind of propping them up because their great enemy at the time, their, their ascendant enemy is Russia, um, who they'll confront in the Crimean War, in the Crimean War. Um, and it's really, it's, it's interesting that the, 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 the Balkan states are caught in this, in this disintegration of an empire that is not just a state or not just an empire that's receding away, but what is left behind is being viciously kind of torn apart by uh, the English, by the Austro-Hungarians, uh, and by the Russians as well, too. Um, just a little bit more, yeah, on the on the state of the Ottoman Empire. Some interesting facts as we kind of move throughout the 19th century is it's, it's almost, I think, impressive that they lasted as long as they did. Um, so there's, again, that massive debt crisis that... That really breaks them. That leads to when, when they find when the um, when it finally gets to the point where it's untenable, and they start defaulting uh, on their debts. The situation, like the Istanbul itself, uh, the the situation becomes like basic infrastructure collapses. Um, There's massive famine throughout the empire, and around the same time, it's around uh, in the eighth in 1864. Russia kind of consolidates its its uh, grip on the Caucasus, and this leads to four hundred thousand refugees coming from the Caucasus into uh, into the Ottoman Empire, so into Anatolia, and some of them will make their way, you know, all the way to uh, Istanbul into the Balkans as well. Too, there's a lot of massive. In fact, as the uh, what's interesting as the Russian Empire expands, it pushes a lot of people out and. A lot of people, a lot of refugees, come into the Ottoman Empire. Um, an interesting story, kind of aside. A lot of uh, Jewish, uh, a lot of the Jewish population of Spain will flee Spain during the, Recon- uh, the, during the, during the uh, Reconquista and head to the Ottoman Empire and, and settle and become kind of the dominant pe- population in uh, Salonica, which becomes Thessaloniki, it becomes kind of one of the main trading and, and merchant hubs in uh in macedonia and current-day greece um so again bracked by you know crises that i think most states if you have a massive debt crisis you have multiple kind of ethnicities and you have multiple emerging nationhoods you have uh, a refugee crisis and you have interestingly enough as as your power is waning in the balkans um uh, a kind of proto or the, the the Bulgarian states, if you will, the, the, the Bulgarian lands are uh, expanding in economic importance. so the the equilibrium of your empire is profoundly destabilized as well too. Now is that happening because Russia's growing
0: in in influence? That's why Bulgaria is gaining in economic importance. Like so vis-
1: like vis-a-vis vis- Russia. Bulgaria gains an economic importance mainly. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an agrarian. Uh, I, I use the word state, but it's that kind of area. Um, it's it exports a lot of its grain, so it sells a lot of its grain uh, to the Ottomans, but it also uh, exports a lot of its grain to Austria as well, too, and Russia. So it becomes a pretty important kind of economic hub. It's a breadbasket, basically. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the, if you, if you look at Bulgaria, there's a lot of, um, it's the same thing with Romania too. They're kind of in the, um, there's, there's a a lot of quite, they're in like the kind of Eastern portion Hmm. or the Eastern valleys of the Balkan mountains. Yeah. It's a lot flatter than the other
0: regions of the Balkans that we're talking about. So it's prime farmland and Bulgaria in particular, it, has a large border along the Black Sea, which has traditionally been a very active trading area, and you could get your grain to market quite easily.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so again, just to, to fast forward here, if we come back to the initial intent of the episode, it was to talk about the, um, the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913. And I think the point uh, that I mentioned that, I thought was the most vital to concentrate on. And maybe that's where we could spend, I think most of our energy now discussing is really, uh, the Congress of Berlin. So 1878. And I think in, in my opinion, this is really the moment where everything that the foundations are laid in Berlin in 1878, that will, um, construct the edifice that, that crumbles in 1912, 1913, 1914, um, so basically in 1876, at this point, Serbia is still, it's still a principality, um, but it senses Turkish weakness, especially because the, um, this kind of strongest wave of the financial crisis that's hitting the Ottoman Empire occurs in 1873. Uh, so in 1876, Serbia, and backed by its uh, terrifying ally Montenegro, <laughs> B- bit of a minor player in this, but still worth, uh, worth calling out. Serbia and Montenegro officially cross over into Ottoman territory, into modern day Macedonia. And, uh, this sets off the Serbo-Turkish war. Um, what's interesting here as well too, is that this was also, you know, this is, uh, Serbia's initiative, but there's also a, a very strong, uh, Russian, not even influence, but there's a very strong Russian backing. So Russia sends uh, one general initially, uh, Chernaev. He'll arrive in Serbia in 1876, and he's backed by about 500 men. And uh, eventually Russia will send 700 officers, which um, is certainly significant. It's very significant when you consider that at the time, excuse me, Russia had, or Serbia had an army... About, uh, I think it was about 250,000. Let me just check here. I want to get this number,
0: which for a small country is pretty substantial. I mean, that's quite the mobilization.
1: So it's uh, uh, um, 125,000 still pretty big. So, exactly, very big. But out of these 125,000 soldiers, they have 460 officers. (laughs) That's a lot of (laughs) officers. (laughs) So this is for the entire for the entire army. I'm and sure they were was...
0: hurting for leadership too if you've been under yep. the control of a foreign power essentially for literally hundreds and hundreds of years and you have no real experience with war making and then you have these people come over who are masters who have been expanding the Russian state out for generations now.
1: Which is I... I think was the hope and the belief, but unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, it doesn't lead. <laughs> it leads within the, um, uh, w- within a couple of months. Uh, the Serbs are completely smashed. Uh, they try to take the city of uh, Nish. Um, I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm probably not, uh, but it's a city that's in modern day Serbia to mm-hmm. the south of, south of Belgrade. Um, they'll send the bulk of their forces to take that city. Uh, that leads in a ruinous defeat. And what's interesting kind of, when you mentioned the the tradition of war making, what had been brewing in Serbia was building up this image of the kind of valiant uh, valiant peasant. So mm-hmm. the, the, the the myth of the peasant soldier, which was very much a myth because while there had been uprisings, um, the uprising of 1803, you go through, you know 50, 60 years, Without, um, without really encountering what nineteenth-century warfare had become, and that's the shock that they're faced with. And that's again, I had mentioned one of the areas of successes of the Ottoman reforms was the army. The Ottoman army at this point was modernized. They had French light artillery. They were using. They had bought croup uh, artillery pieces, so you had this peasant, this really poorly armed. Uh, peasant army. They were using Serbian manufactured rifles, which I'm sure were competent guns, but it was nothing compared to uh, the Ottomans that were starting to be equipped with, uh, you know, modern rifles, and they're completely uh, destroyed. Who were, who were the
0: ottomans do you know who, who they were sourcing their weapons from at this point was it hodgepodge or had the germans already established their links so it would come later or uh
1: in this point there the, uh, there wasn't one main source i know there are a lot of their artillery was coming from the french a lot of their light field guns were, c- were coming from the french um who
0: throughout the 19th century had been or uh, uh, w- very well known for their artillery pieces and yeah. their artillery systems so and the, the French and the Ottomans have a, a very long history. At a time when the, the Ottomans were expanding into Europe proper, the French were always cooperating with them. This is a very long established relationship and to the point where Christians were often referred to in the Ottoman Empire and the general region as, fr- as Franks, right? Just, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was like a, a synonym for
1: Christian. And it's a nice, uh, on the, <laughs> on the point of arms, uh, dealing, they, they really mastered, I mean, all the, uh, all the great powers kind of mastered master this to a certain extent, but the French were especially good at mastering the art of, uh, giving a loan with the condition that most of that money goes to buying our weapons. Yeah. <laughs> just like the U S does with <laughs> Saudi Arabia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's a great foreign policy, uh, that's a great foreign policy method, yeah, let's say. win-win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so, this Serbian defeat in 1876, um, once once the main bulk of the Serbian army is smashed, it opens the way uh, for the Turks to, un- to enter uh, uh, Belgrade. And this terrifies Russia, because up until this point... Um, Russia's ambitions in the Balkans are tied heavily to Serbia. Um, so they'll, again, they send, they send their officers over, uh, the Tsar, it's Tsar Alexander at this point, he's, he's a little bit reticent to, to fully support the Serbs. He, he understands that there's a, there's a, there's a game at play here and that gaining too much influence will notably provoke the, uh, provoke the Austro-Hungarians. Um, but there's uh, this is kind of the the height of the, the within Russia the Pan Slavic movement, and this is what I was mentioning before. Uh, this is uh, Michael Ignatievs, I think I'm completely making this up. <laughs> I think Michael Ignatyevs, great great grandfather, who's the consul in Istanbul at the yeah. time, is this huge proponent of Pan Slavism, and this is uh, a movement for a bit of context, which. Um, seeks to unite kind of all Slavic peoples into one state, and
0: it's a very popular. These like pan-nationalisms were very popular at the time. It's yeah. how you get the unification of Italy. It's how you get the unification of Germany.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting with Pan-Slavism is that it's it's it doesn't have any coherent form to it. So it becomes kind of espoused in local areas with Slav populations uh, to tie them back to Russia. But a lot of so the, the the tsar and the Russian ruling class really looks at Pan Slavism in some cases with a lot of apprehension because there is a certain danger to it in the sense that you can get embroiled in conflicts that you don't want to get embroiled to. Uh, Russia is also a multi ethnic, multinational state, so you you are afraid you want to maintain your own domestic stability as well too, and often just the the ambitions of the Pan kind of Slavic leaders are completely the, the objectives and the ambitions and the interests of these leaders are completely outside of the intentions of the empire as yeah, well too.
0: On the ground it's a different yeah. story than in this romantic notion of uniting these people. Yeah. And even again going back to geography. It's one thing to un- unite people who are like the Germans, you know, they're all in a general area for the most part, but this pan-Slavism, it's reaching across Europe. It's going over the top of people who aren't Slavic like the Romanians. You're going all the way to the other end of the to central Europe essentially oh exactly
1: because if you follow the log the logic to its conclusion, you need to unify people's um you know this could extend to the Czechs it could extend to the poles, but they were the poles for their Catholicism were really often not included in this pan-Slavic ideology. But exactly to your point, it's kind of like we have to literally pave over (laughs) other existing ethnicities and nations. Could extend to the Albanians in theory. since They're
0: Slavic-speaking, but
1: they're Muslim. Yeah. And it's it it reaches kind of weird... There's obviously fundamental weird um, contradictions inside of it in the sense that one of the fundamentals of the pan-Slavic identity is orthodox christianity mm-hmm. so does that include the greeks as yeah, well too exactly. you know <laughs> <laughs> what do you do about those guys technically mm-hmm. the, the, the russian orthodox church uh, submits to the greek ortho- orthodox patriarchy
0: okay so you know, albanian is not check. a yeah. slavic language it's uh, what a greek variant albanian is it's like greek and, Al- and armenian apparently or no, it's like that in that it's a separate language. Okay, that's really, that's fascinating. Okay, I was...
1: Uh, Albania.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it's some kind of uh, older Indo-European language. Interesting. Thank you. Who invited
1: you again? <laughs> John the fact checker. <laughs> He'll be Uh. purged shortly. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) If his facts continue to contradict us, he'll be be purged. (laughs) Uh Um, But again, the example of this movement, um, getting Russia into conflicts that it doesn't really want to be in the Serbo Turkish war is a great example of it. Yeah. Uh, even though eventually again, there's Russian support and, and they see it as an opportunity to, uh, to dramatically weaken the Ottomans. Um, they they don't believe in 1876 that, 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 that the time is right but the serbs take the initiative and uh, because there's people like ignatiev promoting this idea then uh, there is some pressure to to support their slavic brothers as well too but again so this leads to a massive defeat and it'll lead to the russians intervening in 1877 to prevent the turks from completely overrunning serbia and the initial kind of peace that's signed uh, in 1877 in early 1877 just maintains the status quo. So this is in February. And a couple months later, Russia decides, well, fuck it. We're just going to go ahead, <laughs> and attack the Ottomans ourselves. And uh, it leads to a massive Ottoman defeat. So Russia goes, um, heads south, conquers pretty much modern day bulgaria so rumelia thrace um and we'll head all the way to adirne or adrianople which is i think only like 40 kilometers from istanbul it's really not that far so if you can kind of imagine um where istanbul is and the ottoman empire it's balkan holdings extending uh you know including serbia all the way to the to to bosnia and including bulgaria so all the way up almost to the Danube, um, you can imagine those are massive kind of territorial losses. That yeah, occur. I mean, yeah, because
0: Adrianople's an, an old uh, Byzantine town, right? So you think about the Ottomans being the inheritors of the, the Byzantine Empire and that that ancient Greek empire that split off from the Roman Empire. And, and if these people are able to get to within the original core of Byzantium, then that means they're essentially on the
1: Ottomans' doorstep. Exactly. And there's not... Uh, so, interestingly enough, Istanbul is, uh, is can be a, an easy city to defend if you control, obviously, the sea access. Uh, famously enough, uh, Winston Churchill will have the great idea to try to take it through Gallipoli. Yeah. <laughs> and that'll fail.
0: Um, I mean, the, when the Ottomans first went to go take it, they took all the land on the opposite side first because yeah. it was it was easier to actually get into Europe, conquer everyone on that side, rather than take this one city at the at these straits that go through that connect the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. That's yeah. how how great a position it is to defend. Whether it's in the the old, you know, that would have been like the early modern period, or whether you're in World War One, yeah,
1: yeah, that's a th- it's super interesting and and uh, makes me think of I think it's John Keegan who uh, notes in one of his books on like just history of warfare that if if you look, were to look at a map of the world, you'd think maybe Istanbul is one of those cities where you would have this constant back and forth, but I think we remember the this the, the capture of, of Constantinople because it was such a dramatic moment and it was so difficult to do and I think he mentions, he actually says it's Adrianople that is one of the cities, one of the ten cities um, geog- geographical areas where there is the most conflict there, there have been the most battles famously like, a Roman yeah. emperor was slain there um,
0: when the um, I, forget, I forget what Germ- Germanic tribe it was but there were was a germanic tribe that was seeking refuge within uh, the byzantine empire and um, they i think they were fleeing the huns at the time and they were not treated very well by the, uh, the byzantines they weren't given the the appropriate relief that they needed and so they rebelled and they ended up fighting the romans or the, the byzantines and they they slaughtered the emperor and his body was never found just as one of the many uh events that happened in that city, in that region. Do you know which emperor it was? Uh, I don't remember his no. name now. Yeah, let's let's
1: fact check that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> now instead of instead of him correcting us, we'll just keep him busy yeah. <laughs> having him look things up. <laughs> Quick. And just uh, just validate our opinion. Spread
0: <laughs> spread your misinformation now while he's busy. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: Um <laughs> so so basically what happens once Um, once russia pushes through um, the ottomans will capitulate officially in early 1878 and there's a treaty that's negotiated the treaty of san stefano and the consequence of this treaty is that russia will create a massive bulgarian state which i wouldn't be able to describe the, the the borders of it but it more or less resembles the modern Bulgarian state even extending I believe a little bit more into Macedonia Um, and this is a gigantic problem for the balance of power because Russia's uh, eternal ambition or ambition especially in the 19th century is control of the straits and which means control of the uh, Black Sea and access to the Mediterranean which is I mean if you were to kind of be playing a, a war game and put yourself in Russia's position, that's absolutely what you would want to do is take control of Istanbul. Um, so by creating this, this, this Bulgarian state, they have created a client state that's completely, um, that owes them their existence and they've gained massive influence in the Balkans. And this can only put them on a track on a collision course with um with Britain and with uh, the Austro-Hungarians as well, too. So,
0: The Austro-Hungarians also being very interested in getting a warm seaport. Yeah. Because right now, <laughs> even though they are a powerful force in the world, they are so hampered by their inability to reach out into the world. They're really kind of crammed into Europe. They're very isolated in a sense, very vulnerable in a sense. And if you're going to be a part of the new 20th century, the modern world, you have to have access to the seas because that is the only way you're going to get your goods to market. It's the only way you're going to get goods coming into your
1: country. It's the only way to be a modern country, essentially. Yeah. And absolutely. And they have, I mean, they, they control this time, the port of Trieste, but you want to extend that control because it's pretty tenuous. If your if you're kind of Bay Harbor access is one port among many, and there are these emerging states. You have to, um, you really want to extend that control. and At least have that that safe harbor. So again, they'll yeah, their kind of interest, their their uh, their excessive interest in Albania, notably, is is to gain access to their to their main port city. Um, I guess should we go into the Austro-Hungarian <laughs> Empire? Yeah, let's no? touch it a little bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting, too, because their their ambitions... So the Austro-Hungarians... That's, again, something else. I think one of the weirdest... One of the weirdest political entities to exist. And they're especially... They're kind of a weird anachronism already at the time. And they especially will be in, in 1914. Um, but they've just suffered a massive defeat at the hands of the Prussians in 1866. So there's those two kind of... The main... Uh, German victories that will lead to German unification. Um, The Franco-Prussian War in 1871 and in 1866 uh, the Prussians defeat uh, Austria at the Battle of, and I should really have remembered this, John, (laughs) (laughs) I think it's Königskats, but it kind of seals, it kind of basically consolidates German power over the Austrians and completely cuts off the ambitions, if you can imagine kind of the 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 Central European ambitions of the Austrian Empire to expand their influence yeah, northward. Because
0: they have a dual monarchy, right? Like so, wh- where they it's like partially Hungarian, partially German, so yeah. they have this claim to to Germany or German lands. Yeah. And then the Prussians are the new upstarts and, and they're more dynamic and they manage to make the claim for themselves.
1: Yeah. Because the 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 kind of Russian or uh, Russian the German unification that happens I think really becomes is a massive uh, and it's almost something that's not Battle of Königgrätz thanks oh. uh, yeah July 3rd 1866 decisive battle during the seven weeks war between Prussia and Austria um northwest of the bohemian town of Königgrätz in the in the uh in the Czech in the now modern day Czech Republic um so the, what's interesting is the, the kind of dual monarchy, the Ausgleich, is formed in 1867. And uh, to be honest with you, I'd have to, we'd have to go in depth into the, the kind of origins of that. But it's, it really is consolidating that Austro-Hungarian relationship. But it, it allows Hungary to exist more or less as an autonomous state within the empire. So the Habsburg royalty that's at the head of the Austrian dynasty, um, and the which was at the head of the Holy Roman Roman Empire, which I think ceased to exist in eighteen was it eighteen fourteen? When did Napoleon I think Napoleon was the one who got rid of them? Destroyed the key He could be the only emperor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So early nineteenth century the Holy Roman Empire ceases to exist, but the Habsburgs eternally live on with all their deformities. And um so Emperor Franz Joseph at the time, who has been around for a long time since 1848, and he'll die in 1916. Um, he's the head of of the monarchy that contains the kind of dual, uh, the two headed eagle. It's referred to. Uh, they'll call it, I think, um, König and Kaiserlich Crown and Crown and Empire. Um, so Hungary is is quite. Autonomous within this kind of weird dual arrangement, um, the the imperial court under Franz Joseph will retain the ministries of war, finance, and uh, war, finance and foreign affairs. But other than that, for example, the Austrians can kind of form their own uh, autonomous force, the Hanved. So it creates this this interesting situation where. They yes they do form an empire, but their interests the interests of the Austrians and the Hungarians are oftentimes dramatically at odds. And a great example is uh, in the Balkans. So Austria does have Austria specifically um, has expansionist designs, uh, whereas the Hungarians are extremely against any kind of expansion into the Balkans. Because they see the expansion of the empire as diluting their sh- their kind of ethnic share in it, and notably increasing the Slavic share of the population in the empire, um, they they are they're hesitant to again to expand because uh, the one of the main Slavic pop- Slav populations, the Croats, um, have historically been more aligned with the Austrians, and notably, the Croats fought against the hungarians in 1848 in their kind of war of war of independence um so there's a lot there's a lot of reticence there so they're going to be one of the players in 1878 and to kind of come back to san stefano with this um this bulgarian state that's been that's been created that creates again this untenable situation where all of a sudden long story short russian russia has gained uh it's gained a bunch of influence and it's dramatically kind of shifted the balance of power. So the uh, German Chancellor, the famous Otto von Bismarck, is going to call the Berlin Conference. And his position to decide to call the um, or uh, not the conference, the, the Congress. Sorry, his position officially stated, and which is more or less true, is that uh, Germany has no interest in this whole thing. And it's very, it's, but, but it's, it's interesting because, well, exactly, <laughs> yeah, completely, completely selfless. Yeah. But they have no, so objectively, Germany has no client state. I think that's the way to put it. They have no, um, they have no kind of direct influence among any of the peoples in the Balkans, whereas again, the Austrians and the Russians are each trying to build this up, uh, especially the Russians. Um, and by calling the, the Congress of Berlin, what he wants to do is he knows that, this Bulgarian state is putting England and uh, Russia on the path to war, and he wants to prevent this at all costs. So the main outcome of the Congress is that Bulgaria in its current, uh, in its form that was basically drawn by Russia is going to be cut in half, and its two halves are going to become a principality that are, so it's divided kind of on its north-south axis, The northern part is going to become a principality similar to Serbia with the same kind of autonomous rights. Uh, The southern part is going to be an autonomous region under Ottoman control. Again, it's kind of one of these weird arrangements where the pretense of Ottoman power is maintained. Yeah. Um, The Ottomans are going to have to. They're just like the great powers are just creating a buffer zone between the Russians and the Ottomans, essentially. And. Exactly. And they'll they'll even be able to decide. They will negotiate how many troops the, the, the Ottomans can keep in that southern, so eastern Romalia it's called, in that southern portion of Bulgaria. So you can see at this point that Turkey, even though, interestingly enough, it won the first, the, the whole, <laughs> everything that set this off, the Serbo-Turkish war, Yeah, they won it. And now they're just being completely humiliated. Yeah. They'll be
0: completely humiliated they want it in a sense but they want it in a sense but it's exactly so it's exactly. like the serbs the yeah. serbs are chafing they rise yeah. up they don't have it in them yet they're not uh, a warrior people yet uh, which goes really well with their typical martyrdom culture <laughs> so they get slaughtered <laughs> despite support from russia <laughs> Russia you know, <laughs> pounces on the opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> I think we could say the Serbs are a martyrdom yeah, culture. Exactly. They're like they're like yeah. the Irish or the yeah. Shia. Yeah. Their founding myths are entirely predicated on being slaughtered by their neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. that's where they gain their you know, their charisma, their their heroism. It's all in defeats. Yeah. It's all in the it's all in the idea that through defeat you'll eventually reign. Uh, victorious just through your sheer willpower and the fact that you are the righteous one. Yeah. So the the Russians they they pounce on this to to keep their client state still alive essentially, and then they they move in. But you know they're they're sensible enough; they get a good deal. But they realize that the Ottomans are weak for even having to accept the deal. It's one of those things where you put out feelers, and if they immediately come back with "Oh yeah, let's have peace," then you know they're weak. <laughs> so you attack. You attack immediately afterwards. Uh, form this massive buffer state that is untenable, that puts too much danger on this weaker neighbor that is supported by considerably stronger allies, and a third party intervenes to maintain the status quo in Europe, being the Germans, yeah. Otto von Bismarck, the. The great statesman of Europe. Yeah,
1: the great statesman. Who? Funny anecdote. Apparently, he he called the Congress. It was in it was in July of eighteen seventy eight, and uh, this was the time, I guess, when he would usually take his vacation. So he'd be gone. Uh, he didn't like Berlin, or I guess Berlin at this time was kind of insufferable. Got very it's a marsh, so it got very kind of hot and humid. And apparently, he would actually by his not apparently by his own admission, he would drink a jug of port before every session of congress <laughs> so he was already a guy who had a short fuse and who'd get pissed off really easily um but he was apparently just drunk yeah, now he's time time yeah. and i was three sheets of wind and drawing lines on a map yeah, exactly. <laughs> muttering in german yeah well yeah they just just and i mean none of these um the 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 british delegates the austro the austro-hungarian delegates Um, the Russians, they had no idea of the geography of these areas. They had no idea of the the demographics. So they're literally, it's just like, it's like the Stalin-Churchill you know, napkin napkin agreement. (laughs) You're just like drawing lines in between your like It's not even even land
0: that they really want. There's nothing there that they want. It's just, it's the only reason it's because it's on this fault line between empires that actually matter.
1: Yeah. It's it's, your, exactly. Nobody really wants much of it. Um, the British want to ensure that the obviously the Russians don't gain too much influence or gain as little influence as possible. Uh, they want to prop up the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the Austro-Hungarians uh, also have an interest in propping up the, the the Ottoman Empire, and it's interesting because at this point, and I think it's in the early 1870s, Russia and Germany and um, Austria-Hungary have what's called an alliance, the Three Emperors League. So it's it's this really it's this reactionary club. It's like where the the remaining kind of hereditary monarchies, and for them it would be extremely it it would it would just be strategically um, unviable to have another dynasty, another monarchy, the Ottoman Empire, um, collapse as well too and lead and especially at the hands of kind of potentially republican nationalist forces. Uh, so even though there's kind of a land grab that they want to do here uh they are kind of aware that uh the collapse of an empire doesn't look good it doesn't look good for Austro for the Austro uh, Hungarians as well too. Um
0: Yeah, I I kind of lost my train of thought. There. <laughs> So, at this point, we have the, the, the Berlin conference that the Germans are hosting, and we, we essentially come to a settlement here where the original Bulgarian, you know, quote-unquote, state that had been established by the Russians as Buffer, it's been cut in half, with half essentially going to the Ottomans in, in name only, in that they have very little influence, and then having a separate... Is it? It's a
1: principality. Is it? it it's exactly yeah. It's yeah. a principality, to which interestingly deal. enough, I, I believe the Ottomans still had to pay the debts for. So it's just the the weirdest. I mean, it's the weirdest arrangement where it's like, okay, you have to move out of your house, but you're still gonna pay the mortgage <laughs> for it, yeah. Yeah. and you're gonna have to come by and uh, cut the grass uh, if we yeah. ask <laughs> you to, <laughs> and you can live in the backyard yeah. in a tent. <laughs> so
0: so we we now have these. And, uh, so we now have essentially Bulgaria and Serbia being established as actual political entities in the region. Yeah, and and, and Serbia's of their own that are separate from these these uh, three or four uh, hereditary uh, monarchies.
1: Yeah, uh, actually, that's that's a great point in the sense that the 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 game that's being played the whole time here is that these are these. Um, countries that are coming into being, being are acting at the whims of the great powers and i think that's something that they rapidly realize they'll realize in the next 40 years is that no no these are self kind of determining states that all have their own interests and we've set them on a course that we cannot control anymore um so serbia notably in 1878 again uh, to prove your point earlier is through their defeat, they'll gain official independence here from Ottoman rule. So they become. This is 1878 is the date of of uh, Serbian nationhood and independence, um, but at the same time, in 1878 at the Congress of Berlin, Austro the the Austro-Hungarians decide to occupy uh, Bosnia, uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, um, and what this does is that it cuts off one of the main areas of ambition for Serb nationhood and Serb expansion. So uh, again, now we can jump into Bosnia, which is split, has a, nowadays has a a primarily uh, Bosniak population, but also has a very strong Croat minority. So Catholic minority, Croat Catholic, um, Bosniak and Bosniak oftentimes Muslim uh, population, but not entirely. And a Serb population as well, too, that exists inside of Serbia. So, of course, the aims of Serbian nationhood, which become defined as kind of Greater Serbia, obviously extend into Bosnia, and through the occupation, through the Austro-Hungarian occupation, that cut that'll cut off that kind of that expansionist path, because uh, the Serbs who uh, who have very strong links to austria know that they can't really challenge that authority so there's effectively a wall that's been that's been created there so they're going to turn their attention south to macedonia to uh, the lands that were in a space of a few months part of bulgaria more or less air quotation marks Um, they're going to turn their their attention southwards which is where Greece is looking as well too towards Macedonia and which is obviously where Bulgaria is looking to as well too. And the interesting thing is Bulgaria in this Congress was maybe one of the parties that uh, received the most attention, um, which really came into it with the highest hopes. And they are the ones Serbia comes away dissolution, but Bulgaria comes away completely dissolution from this because you can imagine, uh, you you kind of come into being you're brought into the world and then you're basically hacked in half in the in the time period in uh, maybe a year or so and this had all been predetermined so that the partition of bulgaria even before the congress was predetermined it wasn't even up for discussion and that was the, the the specific kind of geographical drawing of the lines on the map occupied the first half and the second half was just kind of hearing the cases from all from the montenegrins from the albanians from the turks who were barely granted an audience um, but a lot of these i mean the albanians for example uh, couldn't even attend the whole conf- congress because they were broke so they just had to leave at some point uh, <laughs> Their same party thing f- just didn't <laughs> pay the tab <laughs> the, no, literally they they, they couldn't they, afford the, they, they couldn't the even crates n- of porto <laughs> that's going to bismarck's <laughs> uh, chamber <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> the, the, the port tax. <laughs> um, same thing for the Serbs, too. The Serbs were kind of kicked from hotel to hotel in Berlin. Okay. And they weren't even, I believe, it, the, the Montenegrins were granted uh, more audiences than the Serbs were at the Congress of Berlin. Wow. <laughs> so th- because the Serbs, again, had, through this defeat, uh, Russia saw them as completely useless. So their main... Uh, their main patron state, Russia, now saw them as useless, incompetent. So they had nobody to back them up at this at this Congress. So Serbia will make will actually have some minor territorial gains, but really, I think if if we'll summarize here, the the Congress of Berlin in eighteen seventy eight the the table is set and the um, the kind of the um, the map of the Balkans. Uh, that is drawn will exist until 1912, until the first uh, Balkan war. And it's this, it sows all the resentment. So again, like I said, Serbia now has to look South, but that resentment of being cut off from its Bosnian ambitions, from feeling like there's a phantom limb. So there's a a part of their nation that is now um, taken away from them by the Austro-Hungarians That resentment is only going to grow. The Bulgarian resentment is only going to obviously grow as well, too, because they've been cut in half. Uh, The Macedonians, who that'll be a whole other thing to get into, but Macedonia that kind of occupies the southeast and immediately neighboring, or still at this this point part of the Ottoman Empire, they were expecting some type of, they had their own kind of emerging uh, national demands. They were expecting something from the Congress. They don't get it at all. So this will lead to, um, you know, that kind of uh, fervent of again conspiracy and plotting and multiple uh, revolutionary committees. Um, so nobody comes away happy from it, and I actually have so I have a, a great quote that kind of summarizes it here. This is a, a British consul in Constantinople who says, basically. What what the Congress what the Congress of Berlin gave gave is that those who think themselves strong enough to support their aspirations so by those he means the Balkan the, the Balkan nations Balkan states those who think themselves strong enough to support their aspirations by arms will be ready to rebel against the authority under which they believe they have been placed in violation of justice and the principle of nationality so under the authority of in the case of uh, in the case of Bosnia, under the rule of the Austro-Hungarians, um, in the case of the uh, Bulgarians, who were momentarily part of a greater Bulgaria, who are now back under Ottoman rule. And he says, those who cannot recur to force, so here, uh, this will be Macedonia and Albania, will have recourse to intrigue and conspiracy. Both processes have already begun. So kind of the the, the path that's set here is either war on the one hand from the nations who can do it, and that'll become Serbia and Bulgaria, or conspiracy, intrigue, and assassination from the ones who cannot. So Bosnia, uh, Montenegro, um, Macedonia, Albania. And um, just on the topic of militarization, Serbia and Bulgaria in this time here will will realize that... um, after their defeats, or especially after the Serbian defeat, the kind of myth of the peasant uh, isn't strong enough anymore. So they're going to go on an intense path of militarization that I'll think make them into the force that we'll see in uh, 1912, 1913, and in 19 in World War One as well, too. Yeah, well, it's a wide gap
0: there between the conference and these wars. So you have what, was it 34 years. Yeah. So that's a, a long time to stew and to prepare. To make war, prepare to correct the wrongs that happened the first time around. Switch from a peasant uprising to a proper military force. Yeah. And meanwhile, the Ottomans are not making any progress, really. No. So you're going to be a, see this this invigorated force go up against essentially the same force for a, a do-over, essentially.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And I think maybe we can um i think we could come back to the to the balkan wars uh in a separate episode um but you'll see that yeah that kind of maturation that's doing um and it will lead to kind of pretty terrifying things notably the kind of bulgarian steamroller um but yeah no there's a lot uh there's a lot of open wounds that fester in this
0: time <laughs> yeah for sure okay so is that it? Did you want to end off on
1: that for this episode? And I think I'm going to end off here because, uh, and I think it, it'd be nice to come back and to kind of present that interlude and then do a proper lead up to uh, to the Balkan Wars to do 1912, 1913. Okay. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, yeah. All so, right. yeah, I think uh, that's the beginning. Hopefully, we haven't offended too many people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we have. <laughs>
0: For a lot of reasons, I called the Albanian Slavs. Yeah. <laughs> I mispronounced every <laughs> single, every
1: single Serbian and <laughs> Turkish word.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we will be back then next time with the uh, the interim between the Berlin Conference and the Balkan Wars, and the Balkan Wars themselves. So, signing off. I'm Joel and Nick. Goodbye.